The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. It was the beginning of a new academic year for University of Florida students. Thousands of young people brimming with anticipation, excited for new beginnings, classes, friends, and of course, football games. But that summer there was someone new in the picturesque college town. Someone watching students through their bedroom windows at night, waiting for just the right moment to strike. Join me now as we take a look at five shocking murders in Gainesville, Florida in 1990. You'll hear how one sadistic killer terrorized an entire city by demonstrating that as long as he was in town, no one was safe, not even in their own homes. At the end of August 1990, more than 30,000 students descended on the college town of Gainesville, eager to start a new school year at the University of Florida. Parents pulled up to the school with their vehicles packed to the gills with every worldly possession their young adult child could possibly need to survive away from home. It's a familiar scene to anyone who's ever been on a college campus during move-in week. For many American teenagers, it's their first time away from their parents, their first introduction to the freedom of adulthood. This year, however, there was something different. Nobody knew it at the time, but a pair of eyes were watching the young students from the shadows, a predator under the cover of darkness and always at night. The eyes searched from window to window surveying and taking inventory of all the new arrivals. One student who was beginning her senior year would become a longtime popular co-host of a WSRZ Sarasota, Florida morning show, Christina Crane. I was going into my senior year and I was part of the College of Journalism and Telecommunications and I was working at WUFTFM, which was 89.1. It was part of National Public Radio. It wasn't the college radio station per se, because it was part of the NPR network, but we were located at the University of Florida. Gainesville is a very frenetic place when it comes to the first few days leading up to the fall semester. There are people everywhere. You don't really know any of your neighbors yet. There are, you know, moving vans and boxes and a lot of parents helping their kids move in. And like I said, no one really knows each other yet, especially if it's your freshman year. So it's very easy for someone to kind of blend into that area of strangerness, if, if that makes any sense. 17-year-old Christina Powell and 18-year-old Sonia Larson were among the lucky students who weren't completely alone starting off the year. They'd met over the summer while taking courses at the university and decided to move into an off-campus apartment together. They were excited to be spending their first night together as roommates. On Thursday, August 23, 1990, Sonia and Christina took a trip to the local Walmart to buy a few supplies for their new home around 6 p.m. As they ring up their items at the checkout, the eyes that had been peeping through Gainesville windows for the past few nights was checking out at the exact same time. The items in his cart? Duct tape isotoner gloves, a screwdriver, and tent. Later that evening, the roommates decided to call it a night and headed to bed. Christina settled downstairs on the couch while Sonia went upstairs to her bedroom. Christina would be able to get properly settled in once her furniture arrived on Saturday with her sister. As the young women slept, a man outside their apartment slid a ski mask over his face and crept up to their front door, Unit 113. 
It was the same man who checked out beside them at Walmart. At three in the morning, the man quietly pulled out a screwdriver from his bag and began prying around the edges of the door frame. When he finally managed to pop the door open, he walked inside, listening intently for any signs one of the young women might be awake, but the only sounds he heard were the humming of the fridge and air conditioner. It was time to execute the next stage of his plan. As he pulled out a roll of duct tape and a razor-sharp military K-bar knife, he crept silently into the living room where Christina lay fast asleep on the couch. He then continued up the stairs to Sonia's bedroom. As she lay sleeping, he stood beside her bed, placed duct tape over her mouth as he plunged the blade of the knife deep into her chest. Jolted awake, Sonia struggled against her attacker as he continued stabbing her until she stopped moving. Downstairs, Christina remained fast asleep, that is until she was startled by a hand covering her mouth. Terrified, she opened her eyes to find a man standing above her, promising not to hurt her if she kept quiet, but he didn't intend on keeping that promise. Shortly after raping her, he stabbed her in the back five times. After murdering Christina, the man went back upstairs and removed the duct tape from Sonia's mouth. Next, he posed her body in a sexual manner on the bed, fanning her hair out to frame her face. He then headed back downstairs and defiled Christina's body. Sadistically, he then proceeded to mutilate her and posed her in a similar fashion to Sonia's. At around 6.30 that same morning, neighbors could hear the sound of running water coming from the apartment. At about 10 a.m., the same neighbors could hear Faith by George Michael blasting from the stereo inside. In no real apparent rush to flee the scene of the crime, the killer made himself right at home, helping himself to an apple and banana from the fridge. It wasn't until he'd spent over eight hours in the apartment, he then finally decided to leave, casually making his exit around 11 a.m. Not too far from the apartment, in a nearby wooded area, the murderer headed to a makeshift campsite where he pitched a tent he'd purchased from Walmart the evening before. Taking refuge from the sweltering Florida summer sun, he laid down in his tent and fell asleep until nightfall until it was time for him to find his next victim. It was Friday, August 24th, and 18-year-old Krista Hoyt decided to go to a party at an apartment close to where she lived. Krista was on an academic scholarship at Santa Fe Community College, just five miles from the University of Florida, and had grown up in the Gainesville area. Excelling in chemistry, Krista was fascinated by police investigations and had dreams of working for the FBI crime lab in Washington, D.C. Because of her interests, Krista took a job at the local sheriff's department, working the midnight shift in the records room. The cops, detectives, and other staff adored the bright-eyed, eager young woman and knew she'd make a great officer one day. Also at the party Krista was attending that night was a man who didn't seem to quite fit in. The man who stood over six feet tall was acting a bit out of the ordinary. His hair was disheveled and his eyes slightly glazed over. Distinct scars on his face also made him stand out in the crowd. Although he seemed a bit out of place, the man hung out for a while and then left without incident. The following day, on Saturday, August 25th, Krista left her apartment around 7.30 p.m. to meet up with a friend for a game of racquetball. She had no idea that while she was at the courts, a man wearing a ski mask was busy breaking into her home. Back at her place, the same man who had broken into Christina and Sonia's apartment was jimmying the lock of her backsliding door with the same screwdriver he'd used before. Once inside, he set to work, moving a large bookshelf that sat in the recess of the wall near the front door into Krista's bedroom. 
he decided it would be the perfect place to hide and wait until his victim returned home. At 11 p.m., Krista arrived back at her place, parked her car, and opened the front door of her apartment. As she placed her things on the table near the door, something deep inside her told her something was out of place. Instinctively, she turned around, just as a figure jumped out from the shadows and grabbed her by the throat. Cupping his hand over her screaming mouth, the masked man gave Krista the same false promise he'd given to Christina. Stay quiet and you'll live. After duct taping Krista's hands behind her back, he proceeded to brutally rape her, then stabbed her repeatedly in the back as he'd done to Christina. Horrifically, just like the first scene, he mutilated Krista's body before committing the most barbaric act of his life. He decapitated her, placing her head upright on the same bookshelf he'd hidden behind earlier. He sat her body upright on the bed, placing her feet on the floor, her arms over her knees, a pose that reminded him of Rodin's famous sculpture known as The Thinker. In the wee hours of the morning, Krista's murderer slunk back into the woods, disappearing into the night. On Sunday, August 26th, Christina Powell's parents left Jacksonville for Gainesville to check in on their daughter. Christina's mother, Patricia, had become concerned when her daughter hadn't called two nights prior like she'd been expecting her to. The concern turned to downright panic when Christina's sister arrived at her apartment on Saturday to deliver the rest of her furniture. Christina wasn't there, or at least wasn't answering the door. Once Christina's parents made it into Gainesville, they headed straight to Christina's place, but Christina didn't answer the door when they knocked either. As their fears intensified, they asked a maintenance worker if he'd be able to let them in. Instead, he called police, asking for assistance. Deputy Ray Barber arrived at the scene at 3.45 p.m., requesting Christina's parents to wait outside while he and the maintenance worker do a walkthrough of the apartment. It didn't take long for the two men to stumble upon the bodies of Christina and her roommate Sonia, just as the killer had left them, posed in such a way to induce the maximum amount of shock to whoever was unlucky enough to find them. As Christina's parents continued waiting outside, they were horrified to see the maintenance worker running from the building shouting, Oh God! Oh God! before throwing up. Word of the murders spread like wildfire as police descended on the crime scene. Although many of the detectives and officers had worked gruesome case scenes in the past, nothing could have prepared them for the sheer depravity they saw inside that apartment. A precursor to the horror they discovered later that night. I was actually at home when a friend of mine that works in the newsroom called me and said that they had found a couple of bodies, two bodies of girls, but actually they, they didn't even say two bodies, they said some bodies, because at this point, the rumors were, some of them were outrageous. I got a call from a friend in another state that said that they had found nine bodies all at once. But of course, the first evidence was, you know, when the sheriff's office found the two girls. Everyone at that point was pretty scared, but it was the feeling in the town was nothing like what was going to be happening in the next few days. On Monday, August 27th, around 1 a.m., just hours after Christina and Sonia had been discovered, Krista Hoyt's supervisor at the sheriff's office became concerned when she hadn't shown up for her midnight shift. Deputy Keith O'Hara and Deputy Gail Barber were dispatched to Krista's house for a welfare check. When no one answered the door, Deputy O'Hara went around the back and saw the sliding glass doors. Although the blinds had been lowered, they didn't reach all the way to the floor. Laying on his stomach, the deputy peered beneath the blinds and into the bedroom. And there, in the beam of his flashlight, he spotted Krista's body propped on the bed. Immediately, he warned Deputy Gail Barber not to look.
News of the three homicides broke later that day, the same day classes were beginning for the fall semester at the University of Florida. The next day when we found out that they found Krista Hoyt's body, no one in the sheriff's department or the public information officer, of course, they weren't giving away details because, well, you don't give away details like that to the press or to the public or anything else like that. You have to keep that sort of information to the vest. And secondly, I think that if they had released the details, it would have caused, I mean, absolute widespread panic because at this point, after three that's when people started walking together in threes and fours and girls would start sleeping with friends that are guys or the dorm room started piling in four or five kids in one room just for safety. And I believe after the third murder with Krista Hoyt, which was, in my opinion, the most horrendous of them all, that is about when people started to flee Gainesville. Immediately, it became clear to detectives the murders were linked. All three victims fit a specific profile. Young women on the shorter side, attractive and brunette, they'd also been murdered and posed in similar ways. Other similarities included the method for gaining entry into the homes, the duct tape placed and removed from all three victims' mouths, as well as dish soap being used to clean their bodies, perhaps in an attempt to eliminate evidence. At the same time officers had been called to Krista Hoyt's apartment, her murderer was already looking for his next victim. As he moved from home to home, peering through windows at night, he spotted the person whose life he'd take next. 23-year-old Tracy Paulise, a pre-law student at the University of Florida. She was young, athletic, an attractive brunette just like the others. As he looked through a window, Tracy lay on her bed as she spoke on the phone to one of her best friends, Lisa Byer. Lisa was warning Tracy to be careful after hearing about the discovery of two people murdered. But Tracy reassured her friend by saying she'd be okay, she had Manny. Manny Taboda was her boyfriend, a 23-year-old architectural student who was 6 foot 2 inches, weighing 200 pounds. The kind of guy that made women feel safe just by his presence. It was the main reason Tracy moved in with him. Although the two students were officially a couple, they'd actually started out as really good friends back in high school. When the news of the murders began to spread, Tracy felt comfortable knowing she had Manny to protect her. She just hoped he'd get home soon from his bartending shift. On Monday, August 27th, at around 2 a.m., Manny finally arrived at home and went to bed. The next time he opened his eyes, he was being stabbed in the chest with an 8-inch military knife. Although Manny managed to get in a few blows to the attacker, he eventually died after being stabbed over 30 times. Startled by the commotion, Tracy ran into the hallway, only to find Manny's murderer standing there. Immediately, she ran back in her room, locking the door behind her. After the door was swiftly kicked in, Tracy asked the man, You're him, aren't you? He lied and said he wasn't before raping her and stabbing her multiple times in the back. Her body then dragged into the hallway. This time, he made up his mind to leave Gainesville for good before he was discovered. When the news of the three murders broke on Monday, August 27th, Tracy and Manny were already lying deceased in their apartment. After hearing the news of the third murder, Krista Hoyt, Lisa tried calling her friend Tracy again to inform her, but when she got no answer, she asked a mutual friend named Tommy Carroll to check in on her. At 7 a.m. on Tuesday, August 28th, Tommy arrived bright and early at Tracy and Manny's apartment, but when he knocked on the door, no one answered. Just like Christina's parents, he too asked a maintenance worker to unlock the door for him. Once inside, Tommy spotted Tracy's body lying on the floor, a dark-colored bag sitting beside her. Immediately, the two men turned around and went back outside, locking the door behind them, before calling the police, who arrived in just under five minutes. Strangely, when the police arrived, the door to the apartment was unlocked again, 
and the bag the two men had seen sitting beside Tracy's body was now nowhere to be seen. When a large man was killed, Manny Tabota, everyone, everyone panicked. I mean, it was this just shared terror that we all felt that everyone felt that they could be the next victim. It didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. It didn't matter if you were, you know, a woman that um, was rooming with a guy. No one was safe at that point. Even the girls that were rooming with guys at frat houses and whatnot, that is that was the moment that we all felt that no one is safe. And that was when the mass exodus really kicked in. All of the roads leading out of Gainesville were packed with students trying to get away from campus as soon as possible. At the same time, the roads leading into town were also jammed as the media descended onto the chaotic scene. There were just streets blocked off, overflowing with news trucks, international news, national news, any local, any Florida outlet that you could find. I mean, just vehicles just spilling over themselves into neighbors' yards, into other streets, And I saw actual reporters throwing bows. I mean, they were elbowing each other to try to get the best microphone position in front of whatever authority they could find and trying to get that one little piece of information that another news or media outlet couldn't get. It got pretty brutal, even among the reporters themselves. It got pretty brutal. And, you know, and I have to admit something. I have to tell you that a lot of the newscasters were guilty of spreading rumors about the number of murders. They would say at this point, you know, sources claim or from what we understand, we have not been able to confirm. But that still, in a way, is perpetuating rumors. Although many students fled the area, there were some who chose to stay behind. One of those students was Christina Crane. When my dad called and said, okay, you're coming home. Everybody's coming home. I want you home now. That was when I had to explain that I I can't say the word aloud. That is not an accurate word. What I can say is when everything was happening and we were reporting on the murders, our news director said, this is the profession. This is what it's about. If you want to leave, you can. And I understand. But This is what we do and what you want to do for a living. We don't leave when it gets hard. We don't leave when it gets dangerous. You stay and you report. But I cannot guarantee you're going to have your job or your position when you come back, if you come back. So I really thought about it for about 30 seconds and said, no, this is what it's about. I love my position. I had worked up to being the director and and I stayed. And my dad came up and spent two nights on the couch with gun in his hand. But yeah, I stayed and I don't regret that at all because just like the director said at the time, the head news director was, this is what it is. And if you have the guts for the job itself, this is going to prove your mettle right now. In the coming days, law enforcement devoted every resource they could to track down the serial killer. They even called in the big dogs, FBI Special Agent John Douglas, the man responsible for anyone in the world becoming familiar with the term FBI profiler. TV shows like Criminal Minds and the Netflix series Mindhunter are all based on that very real-life FBI Special Agent, the man who literally wrote the book on criminal psychology. As John Douglas dove into the case, A torrent of phone calls flooded into the Gainesville police switchboards. Thousands of people calling in tips and reporting suspicious behavior. But there was one name in particular that kept coming up over and over and over. A man who John Douglas agreed fit the profile of the killer they were looking for. Ed Humphrey, a 19-year-old part-time student at the university who'd previously been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Neighbors and former roommates informed police Ed had recently been kicked out of his apartment for acting strange. He'd been known to walk into neighbors' apartments uninvited, also staring at them through windows. Not only that, he'd been overheard expressing a vitriolic hatred for women, specifically stating he wanted to cut up his ex-girlfriend and cut off her head. Standing over six feet tall and weighing 230 pounds, 
Ed lived in the building across the road from Tracy and Manny, often seen walking around with a hunting knife strapped to his leg. He'd also been seen wearing camouflage clothing, frequently wandering off into the night, not returning until morning. He called these missions stakeouts. Other notable information about Ed was that he had a massive crush on Tracy Pauly's and had been caught staring at her a few days prior to her murder. He also attended the same party as Krista Hoyt the night before she was murdered. There were just too many coincidences. There was no question Ed Humphrey checked all the boxes. Either he was the serial killer, or he was the most unfortunate person alive in Gainesville. Police immediately began 24-hour surveillance on Ed, arresting him on Thursday, August 30th, but not for the murders, for an argument he'd had with his grandmother in her home and hitting her. By Friday, Ed's mugshot was in newspapers that were widely reporting Ed was the prime suspect in the Gainesville murders investigation. Ed Humphrey looked exactly how people imagined a serial killer might look, and with Ed behind bars, the people of Gainesville believed they were now safe. Ed was held on a $1 million bail, 200 times the normal amount for an assault charge, and despite his grandmother's pleas to drop the charges, he was then sentenced to the absolute maximum time for the charge, 22 months. And then, just like that, the murders abruptly stopped. A collective sigh of relief was felt throughout the entire state, as everyone believed police had apprehended the madman terrorizing their community. Slowly but surely, students who fled Gainesville returned back to campus, relieved they could continue their school year without fear. I can tell you a lot of people in my particular newsroom thought 100% it was Ed Humphrey. And I believe they kind of tried to build the case around him like, okay, we have the suspect now, let's build a case around it to make sure that it fits. And I was never convinced that it was Ed Humphrey. A lot of people did. But I never thought he was capable. And I always thought that it was too easy of a solution. Like it was a case that just had a bow on it. And here you go. Here's what happened. Here's this man that needs medication and has illnesses and has this thing in life that he can or can't control. It was just too easy. You know, when something is too good to be true, it usually is. That's really how I thought. And to me, he didn't even seem capable of that type of, that level of violence. By early 1991, life in Gainesville had for the most part returned back to normal. Detectives and prosecutors worked tirelessly behind the scenes, building a case against Ed Humphrey. But they'd hit a major snag. Ed's blood type didn't match any of the blood found at the crime scenes. In fact, there was hardly anything that could directly link Ed Humphrey to the murders at all. Around the same time, detectives from the town of Shreveport, Louisiana, alerted Gainesville police. They had a crime scene that bore a remarkable resemblance to the Gainesville murders. A triple homicide from 1989, where a 24-year-old brunette had been raped, stabbed, cleaned, and posed. Cindy Dobbin, a Shreveport woman, happened to be watching TV when a news story came on, suggesting a possible connection between the Shreveport and Gainesville murders. A few days later, Cindy called in a tip to police, suggesting they should look at a man named Danny Rowling. I was in the newsroom when a report came down from the police that they are looking at another suspect, this guy that had been picked up for robbery and his name was Danny Harold Rowling. Honestly, it was kind of like out of the blue that they had picked up this other guy because he was on nobody's radar, obviously. And at that time, the only person that was on the radar, the only radar there was, was Ed Humphrey, unfortunately. Following up on the lead, detectives discovered they actually had a 36-year-old man named Danny Rowling sitting in prison since his arrest on September 7th for armed robbery. Sure enough, after getting a DNA sample, a match was made for semen found at one of the crime scenes to the man they had in prison. On January 25th, 1991, Danny Rowling was formally announced as the prime suspect in the Gainesville slayings. 
But who was Danny Rowling? How was a twisted psychopath killer able to sit under detectives' radar for so long unnoticed? In Shreveport, Louisiana in 1954, James Rowling was furious to discover his new bride Claudia had become pregnant just two weeks into their marriage. He wasn't interested in having a baby and was determined to hate it from the start. He took that anger out on his pregnant wife Claudia, beating her on multiple occasions. By the time Danny Rowling was born into the world, the trauma, abuse, and mental torture that would characterize his childhood had already begun. To help explain how Danny developed into the adult he became, clinical psychologist Dr. Christina Frazzani explains. As a child, Danny was reported to have endured severe physical abuse at the hands of his father. He was thrown, kicked, and beaten, one time as a baby, simply for not crawling properly. A year later, Claudia gave birth to another son, Kevin, and he was treated the same. Both boys continued to be subjected to physical and emotional torture. They were ridiculed and even reminded that their father had not wanted children. When Danny was 12 years old, his father kicked the family dog to death right in front of him. Despite Claudia's repeated efforts to take the children and run away, apparently her husband was always able to convince her to return to him. When children experience emotional abuse, they feel scared and confused about why the people who sometimes love and protect them are also the people who hurt them the most. Children who are abused often feel isolated and alone, especially if they understand that other children might not experience abuse, or if their abuser threatens them if they socialize or turn to other families for help. This can lead to a lifetime of fear and resentment, anger and low self-esteem. In Danny Rowling's case, there was also physical abuse, and his father told him that he was unwanted. He ridiculed him for normal childhood development, like learning to crawl and later being interested in girls. Danny may have felt trapped in a situation he didn't understand or know how to get out of, building up anger towards his father while learning to doubt and even hate himself as he grew up. There were reports of abuse to authorities and efforts to intervene. Police were called by neighbors and relatives on many occasions over the years. However, no actions were ever taken to rectify the situation because James Rowling was a local police officer. Police and child welfare are often called to help investigate or intervene in reported child abuse. However, when the abuser is a police officer himself, other officers may feel it's unnecessary to investigate since they trust the officer professionally or they might feel intimidated by the officer and not want to anger or embarrass him or her. Because no one ever helped Danny, his brother and his mother, the abuse just went on year after year. One day when Danny was around 14, a friend came by the house and told him that he had something to show him. The two boys hopped the back fence into a neighbor's yard and the friend told Danny to look through the window. When Danny looked, he saw that one of the high school cheerleaders was undressing in her bathroom. This seems to have been a life-changing moment for Danny. From that day forward, Danny would wait until nightfall, sneak out of his house, and peer through windows. The young voyeur went out into the dark, no matter if it was raining or freezing, and stay out until the morning, peeping in windows. Almost every single night for the next few years. At first, Danny simply took comfort watching normal families do normal things. He'd sit outside for hours watching them. For Danny, voyeurism was his form of escapism. But as the years went on, watching families turned into watching women, specifically women who were undressing. And it wasn't long before he began the habit of masturbating outside of their windows. Danny left home the day he turned 17 to enlist in the Air Force, even though it meant he would likely end up in Vietnam. But after a series of behavioral issues, he was discharged after only two years without ever deploying. It was reported that his father, a Korean war hero, 
was openly disgusted by what he considered to be a failure. In 1974, Danny married a woman in Shreveport, and they had a daughter only a year later. But during her pregnancy, Danny reverted back to peeping through windows and was caught by the police. When his wife found out, she was horrified, and the marriage ended after only four years. On the day Danny received his divorce papers in 1979, he committed his first rape. The victim was a young woman he'd been watching through a window just three days earlier. Then Danny committed a series of armed robberies, robbing bars, liquor and grocery stores, until he was finally arrested and sent to prison for the next five years. Despite attempting three separate prison escapes, one in which he even evaded authorities for three days, Danny was released in 1984. After his release, Danny's criminal activity reached a whole new level. Instead of just peeping into homes, he began breaking into them, almost always when someone was home. He'd often rob and steal, but he did it mostly for the thrill of it, something he would describe as akin to chasing a drug high. Many times, Danny would break into a house and simply sit in the dark for hours and watch women while they slept or studied. Then he would leave without taking anything or interacting with them. His methodology was evolving as he grew more confident, similar to the serial killer Joseph D'Angelo. It appears that Danny Rowling watched other families, at first out of fascination or a desire to witness the type of family that he didn't get to be a part of when he was young. Then it escalated into witnessing women he felt he could not have a romantic or sexual connection with in any other way. He may have felt that the only way he could be a part of their lives was to watch them or dominate them. He might have taken out his anger and resentment from childhood on these women. There are a few different mental health diagnoses in Danny Rowling's reported mental health history. I obviously have not interacted with Danny Rowling or evaluated or diagnosed him myself, so I can only make some speculative commentary on what's already been reported. When he was in grade school, Danny was apparently evaluated by a mental health counselor after having attendance problems, and at that time, he was found to have an inferiority complex with aggressive tendencies. It was later also reported that he struggled with alcohol abuse and multiple personalities, and we know that he was kicked out of the military for drug use. There's not a lot of information about what those drugs were or just how often he used them. These days, multiple personality disorder is called dissociative identity disorder, which is kind of a way of saying that a person becomes out of touch with the reality actually around them and temporarily escapes from the physical world in order to escape a traumatic memory or some sort of emotional association or situation. An even later report determined that Danny had two different personality disorders, borderline and antisocial. Borderline personality disorder describes a dysfunctional pattern of relationships and self-destructive behavior. Often someone with this disorder will feel paranoid that others are purposefully hurting or abandoning them. And then the person becomes angry and agitated and confrontative, which further pushes the other person or people away. And then people with antisocial personality disorder do not believe that they have to really abide by the laws of society and often do harm to other people without any remorse. People with antisocial personality disorder are also often charming and use that charm to be manipulative. Although Danny reportedly suffered from these personality disorders, the court still found that he knew right from wrong and he knew he was breaking the law when he committed murder. Therefore, mental illness was not an excuse and did not get him out of the verdict and the death penalty. Later in 1984, Danny raped his second victim in Savannah, Georgia, after watching her for hours through a window. For the next two years after, Danny drifted around the country, watching women, breaking into homes and robbing stores. That is, until he was arrested again for robbery in 1986. After another escape attempt, Danny was sent to Mississippi State Penitentiary, 
where he spent months on end in solitary confinement. During his time in solitary, whatever was already sick, twisted and disturbed within Danny's mind was kicked into overdrive. He swore to himself he'd take one soul for every year he spent in prison. When he was released three years later in 1989, he'd served a total of eight years behind bars, which meant to Danny, eight souls. The first of his victims would come after he was fired from a restaurant job in 1989. The Grissom family, living in his hometown of Shreveport, a family he'd watched many times over the years. After breaking into their home, he stabbed an eight-year-old boy named Sean, as well as his grandfather Tom, then raped and murdered Sean's aunt, 24-year-old Julie Grissom. He then removed the duct tape from her body, cleaning the evidence with vinegar and posing her body provocatively. Just a few months later, in May 1990, Danny was back at home living with his parents when he got into a huge fight with his father. Danny and his father both pulled out guns and started shooting at each other. James Rowling was hit by two bullets, one in the stomach and one in the head. Somehow he survived. Now wanted for the attempted murder of his father, Danny fled the area, robbing several grocery stores and homes along the way. On August 18th, the sliding doors of a Greyhound bus hissed open at a bus stop in Gainesville, Florida. Danny Rowling had arrived. After Danny murdered Tracy and Manny, he decided to get out of town as quickly as possible, but in order to escape, he needed money. Shirtless and wearing a ski mask, Danny robbed the First Union National Bank in Gainesville on Monday, August 27th, the same day he killed Tracy and Manny. Later that night, police saw Danny walking and attempted to arrest him on suspicion of robbery, but he was able to elude them by escaping into the woods. However, tracking dogs were able to follow Danny's scent and police discovered his makeshift campsite along with a bag full of money covered in exploded pink dye. They also found a ski mask, gloves, a 9mm pistol, screwdriver, and a cassette tape. Danny spent the following week breaking into homes as he made his way down to Tampa, where he again robbed a local grocery store. But soon after the robbery, Danny brought two exotic dancers back to his motel room, who ironically turned around and robbed him of all his stolen money as he slept. Desperate for cash, Danny broke into another home and stole their Ford Mustang. He then headed to Ocala, Florida, where he robbed yet another grocery store. This time, Danny wasn't so lucky. It was training day for the local police department, meaning there was twice as many patrol cars on the street than any other day. Danny didn't just have one police car chasing him, he had multiple. Danny was soon apprehended and arrested, but no one had a clue. He was the same person who'd robbed the First Union National Bank in Gainesville. If anyone had have ever listened to the cassette tape they'd found at the campsite, however, they would have known immediately. Not only did Danny give his full name on the recording, he also apologized to his dad for shooting him, a crime for which there was no active warrant out for his arrest. On the very night Danny murdered Christina and Sonia, he made one final recording. Christina and Sonia were murdered just hours later. Ed Humphrey served just over a year in prison before being released. Once authorities began pointing their finger at Danny, Ed's lawyers were able to convince a judge that his 22-month prison sentence was overkill for a crime that would usually only have gotten him probation. It eventually came to light that Ed's suspicious behavior leading up to the murders was actually the result of him not taking a prescribed medication for his schizophrenia. His innocence in the Gainesville murders proved to be a wake-up call for an overeager media, as well as a reminder to the public that perhaps we just don't know what a serial killer looks like. Ed eventually graduated from the University of Florida and is attempting to live a normal life, but he never fully got over the trauma of the entire ordeal. I feel partially at fault because we were so quick to judge and 
the media was just whipped into a frenzy. Everybody was terrified. We wanted to find the bad guy. We wanted to feel safe again. And we, it was so easy to latch on to Ed Humphrey. And yeah, I, I do feel a bit of personal responsibility for that because I was one of the people that was reporting on it. So I look back, my heart breaks for him. And, you know, if I saw him, I would absolutely apologize. Nobody ever disputed there was something extremely wrong inside Danny's head, but the depth of his obvious mental issues and the extent to which they could be forgiven has been contested ever since. Numerous psychiatrists examined Danny to see whether or not he was even competent to stand trial. He spoke of multiple personalities that existed within him. There was Danny, who was a shy, good-natured man who wouldn't hurt a fly. Then there was Enad, a cowboy outlaw personality who exuded the confidence and recklessness that spawned his robberies and rapes. Lastly, there was the demonic presence he called Gemini, a presence Danny described as pure evil that took over his mind and body during the murders. Danny was eventually diagnosed with borderline personality disorder as well as possession syndrome by multiple experts but was ultimately still ruled eligible to stand trial. Still others believed he had made it all up, tracing almost every single one of Danny's possession claims back to the movie, The Exorcist III, which he's seen in the theater the week before the murders after he arrived in Gainesville. The name of the demon in that movie, Gemini. In the movie, the demon spoke a language no one could understand, which turned out to be simply English but backwards. Enad, the other personality supposedly inside him, was just Danny spelt backwards. To many, the connections between Danny's claims and the movie were enough to convince them he'd made up the personalities. In February 1994, Danny surprised everyone by pleading guilty to all five counts of first-degree murder. On the same day, jury selection had begun for his trial. Meanwhile, back in Shreveport, James Rowling came home one day to find his wife Claudia watching coverage of their son's case. By this point, Claudia was dying from terminal liver cancer and only had months to live. James became so enraged she was watching the case that he ripped away the tubes that had been medically inserted into her liver. Later, James filed for a divorce and, like always, was never charged with any crime. On March 19th, Danny received the death penalty and was executed by lethal injection on October 25th, 2006. Just moments before his execution, Danny passed a handwritten letter to the reverend who'd accompanied him to the death chamber. Inside, was a full and frank confession of the Grissom family murders. Christina Crane describes how the Gainesville murders continue to affect her over 30 years later. After everything that happened in August in 1990 in Gainesville, my life has never been the same. And I can tell you that my husband's life has never been the same. There are so many things that happen around me on a daily basis that I know for a fact was because of Danny Rowling and because of the tragedy in Gainesville. I hate sliding glass doors. Hate them with a passion. We are looking right now to get them replaced with French doors because I hate sliding glass doors so much. I know a person with a K-bar knife. Every time I see the K-bar knife, it sends shutters down my spine. I refuse to stay anywhere on the ground floor in a hotel, a motel, anything that has a ground floor, I will not stay in it. I have to have a monitored, 24-7 monitored security system. We have cameras. I've always had a dog. I will never not have a dog. And I am always aware of my surroundings. I never back my car out of a garage until I am in the car and locked. Then I open up the garage. I know it sounds paranoid, but you know, I fit the description. We were just yards away from Krista Hoyt lived. It just, it affects you. And, and for me, it's affected me for the rest of my life. And for that, I really have very strong, hateful feelings for Danny Rowling. 
But at the same time, you know, everyone should be aware of their surroundings. It's just for me, it's kind of been, um, sometimes it's been a little paralyzing. And, you know, 32 years later, we're still talking about the story, but I hope the story that we're talking about is about those five victims in Gainesville and the three in Shreveport, Louisiana. In Gainesville, it's called the 34th Street Memorial. And um, there's this wall that every class, every person, you know, always spray paint stuff or paints, you know, pictures or whatever. And it's kind of like a rite of passage. But in the middle of the 34th Street wall is this beautiful black, white and red memorial to the five victims in 32 years that has always remained untouched and kept up. I think that is a testament to how strong Gainesville was, how strong Gainesville is and Gator Nation. And uh, hopefully the good that'll come out of that is remembering the victims. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Susan M., Carly H., Kathleen K., Mark P., Vic, Bill S., May S., Katrina F., Chelsea J., Cassie W., Griffin C., and Jan O. And now I'd like to introduce you to the podcast, Dark Poutine. Oh, Canada. Peaceful idyllic, full of friendly people and wide open spaces. But there's another side to the Great White North, full of mystery, crime, and dark history. I'm your host, Mike Brown. Join me and a co-host weekly on the Dark Poutine Podcast as we journey inside the minds of murderous monsters and look at unsolved cases, little-known mysteries, the paranormal, and more. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by the Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause